And now I'm a race car that I'm fed, you know, I have the best mechanics working on my engine. I have somebody constantly rotating my tires. I have the purest gasoline being put into my uh, system. And I am unleashed on a racetrack, which is Dubai, LA, New York. You know, for me, I would not have it any other way. Hey everybody, today my heart is really filled with so much gratitude and joy and a deep sense of appreciation because I'm getting to sit down with someone that I've admired and respected for so much of my life. I had the pleasure to connect with him in London a couple of years ago and from the moment you meet him, his energy captivates and inspires you like no one else has done before. What he has achieved is a tribute to years of hard work energy, tireless dedication. His success is every dentist's dream come true. It's no other than Dr. Michael Apper, dentist, entrepreneur, and an all-around boss. With offices in New York, Dubai, Los Angeles, and a line of luxury oral care cosmetics, Dr. Apper is fulfilling his vision to bring the very best of aesthetic dentistry into the world. Dr. Apper, it's a pleasure to sit down with you. Oh, it's great to be here. And thank you. That's a very, very nice intro. I, I, I believe 20% of it. <laughs> As you know, every, like your birthday, Thanksgiving, I always drop you a message and let you know just how much you, know, you inspire me. And I really, really appreciate you. I appreciate that. So I would love to dive in and uh, just start with pretty much talking about your time as a student, your upbringing before becoming the Dr. Michael Apper. I want to hear about what was so formative about your younger years that formed you to who you are today and what brought about this great work ethic we all see that you have. It's an interesting question. Um, you know, first of all, I, I definitely, if you asked my parents when I was a kid, if I was going to be the person I am today, there's no way they would say yes. I think I was actually referred to as lazy when I was a kid. So, so there was a couple interesting things that, um, you know, I always talk about having a vision for how you want to live your life. And I grew up in upstate New York, which was a, you know, relatively not a small town, but like a neighborhood type place where there was, you know, chain restaurants and chain supermarkets and, you know, like communal sporting fields. And um, the high school was big and, you know, there was a thousand kids that graduated each, each year in my graduating class at high school. So it was like a big public school, but it was, you know, it was a wonderful place to grow up. It's just, I never, you know, I always felt like I didn't belong there. Um, I felt like I almost had to uh, not mute my personality, but I, I always stuck out and for good or bad. Um, people either loved me or hated me. Um, and I always felt that 
you know, there was things in my life when I was growing up that I knew that I did not want to do. So for instance, my dad was huge into chores and yard work. So, you know, every morning he would like wake me up at eight o'clock with like a leaf blower or something under my bedroom window. And I hated it. Like I can remember my dad used to tell me to rake dead grass in the fall to, sorry, in the winter spring. So it was this job where you would take a rake and we had a big lawn and you would literally just rake that, like the grass and it, it, you know, you could break it 500 times and you'd still get that grass up. And so I was just one of those pragmatic people where I didn't see that this was a good way to spend my time. Mm-hmm. And I think another, so that definitely, you know, one of the things that, that bothered me about growing up is um, how, not bothered me, but I just didn't love how time was spent. Most of the day was spent doing sharp, like yard work. Hmm. And um, so I think that's part of why I never, I mean, I have a house now, but I, I didn't want to grow up in that type of environment where, you know, you worked all week and then on the weekends you clean the pool, cut the grass, rake the leaves, edged. leaf blue I mean it was just countless Um, so needless a wax cars needless to say I'm not a handy person Um, because I just I never I never enjoyed it it was not relaxing for me at all Um, I think one of the other things and it's interesting because I find this with a lot of successful people in life and some not but I think I grew up with a chip on my shoulder for sure. So I felt like I was great when I was young, like when I was, you know, two or five. Okay. And I felt very intelligent. So when adults would talk to me like a child, it used to bother me. I felt, um, and it was hard to put into words, but I just felt like I understood kind of what was going on in the world from a very young age and knew that I did not want to, to be in that position in life. And so, and then the other thing was I was chubby growing up. So, you know, I looked at myself from within my head and I was this gorgeous man. And when I looked at myself in the mirror, (laughs) I was put in the friend zone constantly by girls and it, you know, it used to bother me. And, and so, you know, that I was never the most athletic kid because I just didn't really care. I was a skateboarder, which were always kind of outsiders. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I think a bit of all those things shaped my vision of Number one, never wanted to care about money. And that was a big thing for me. I wanted to have enough to live my life to not always think about it. It was something that I grew up with um, that my parents still laugh. You know, you don't know the value of a dollar speech. Um, I never cared. And I used to like, and it used to drive my parents crazy because they worked really hard for every dollar that they ever made. And I... You know, I would purposely not budget my money because I would say to myself, like, you're going to be at a point in your life where it's just not going to matter. And that was a goal. 
because I just felt that I did not want to be, um, I don't know, strapped by that, which I see so many people are. Whether I was rich or poor, it didn't matter. I just didn't want to think about it. Um, the other thing was I was told a lot when I was a kid that I couldn't do things. You can't, you're not going to be on the all-star team. You're not a great football player. You're not, you know, it was always like people were never congratulating me about anything. Mm -hmm. Um, you're lazy. You're never going to amount to, you know, it was like constant and being the person that I was, I knew it wasn't true. And it fueled me and it made me angry. Uh, and it fueled me to kind of show people that like, all right, you know, let's see. Um, but I also think naturally just in life, you hit a stride. Um, and I hit mine in college and I can remember it like it was yesterday where in my first semester of freshman year, I was terrible. I was doing terrible in school and I was on a scholarship and this early assurance program to dental school and academically I was about to get kicked out of it and I just turned it up and it was just like a one thing um started changing everything so I started working out I started losing weight I started eating right I started studying more and just like from that minute on is when like the animal that you see today in front of you was born and it was kind of like a culmination of me just waking up. It was getting out of, you know, upstate New York, being in my own environment, not having outside voices telling me that I can't, you know, what I can and can't do. And being able to just rely on myself to, to, to kind of be, be success. I say successful very loosely, but be successful in what I was choosing to do. Um, and then once you become, you know, once you achieve even the smallest amount, once one person says, oh, you look good or, oh, you know, you're really smart at, I remember my I, second year of college, I became an organic chem tutor and it was organic chem was like the make or break class of med students, yeah, okay. pre-med students. And I got, you know, like 98s or something like that on all my tests and got an A in the course and became a, a tutor. And it was one of those things where no one had ever told me like, wow, you're really smart. And now they were starting to tell me, and I knew I was always smart. I just wasn't applying myself because, you know, I just didn't, I didn't care. I knew at some point I was going to turn it on. Mm -hmm. um, and so from that point forward, you know, the little achievements, the little wins that I was getting created more momentum for me to say like, oh, wow, I can really do all of these things. And then, you know, then you start to like break through the ceilings of, of whatever constraints the outside environment that you were in were put on you. And then I moved to New York and then it was over. Um, as soon as I walked into New York City, like literally the minute that I got here, I was like, I'm never leaving. This is, the place. I mean, my energy felt good. My mind relaxed. Like I finally felt like I was someplace where I could really be myself and that is what really propelled me into uh, wanting to be successful. And by the way, seeing the environment around you in New York with, you know, how much people achieve here, all those things where your mother says, Oh, you know, 
you don't need to do that. Just relax or take it easier, take a rest. You know, there's none of that here. And there's just none of that distraction of voices, again, setting limits on you. And that for me was a, a big thing. Oh. That's a very long answer to a very short question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but it's great. Um, so how important would you say was having someone like Larry Rosenfeld be your mentor? And what did that do for you? Obviously, you came into New York, changed your personality, or go get it from there. How did Larry, I can tell you, to take that next step up? You know, it's interesting because Larry was more a mentor in the beginning from the outside of me seeing what he was doing. You know, when I first joined this practice, he really didn't talk to me that much. Um, and he, it was interesting because he doesn't, he didn't, he does now, but he did not just give just anyone his time. Um, especially because I'm sure there was a lot of people that came in, worked for him. They wanted to like take and then leave. And, you know, you become guarded after a while. And, that, you know, I under certainly understand that position. But he had kind of a tough shell around him in the beginning where it wasn't easy to really talk to him. But the way that he mentored me in the beginning was by sending an example of his work ethic of, his vision of dentistry and all those things that people saw from the outside, I started to model myself after. Um, and then when we became friends, which he's, you know, undoubtedly my best friend at this point in time in my life. Um, and he started to open up about, you know, his personal life and his real inner visions of dentistry and all those things. I think that as he walks by, his pink flops up. <laughs> I think that is what cemented um, a lot of things in my head. Uh, but it was also always, again, it was a benchmark that, you know, you always need some form of internal competition, right? Yeah. And it wasn't competition in a bad way, but he was my benchmark. And I knew like, if I wanted to be anything in dentistry, what I thought I was, I needed to get to his level in terms of patient attraction, dental skills, you know, vision, all the things that he embodied, I needed to get better at. And so, you know, obviously there, there was no point in time where Larry would sit down and tell me like, this is what you need to do. It was interesting. He would just, be himself and allow me to be a part to experience his life. And that's how he was really my best mentor. Oh, great. I think I read somewhere that um, he said to you, it's easy to get to the top, but it's harder yeah. to stay at the top. And yeah. I think everyone around the world sees the amount of work you do through social media. And uh, you're able to consistently put out more work than any other dentist that I know. But what's even more fascinating than that to me is that you don't do it via chairside milling or CAD cam. Um, a lot of dentists do. In fact, what you create is bespoke. Um, I think I heard you say with Finkel Christian Coachman that you can't replicate it digitally what you have. Um, you have a ceramist everywhere you go. It's not 
mid-level dentistry at all. It's unique, detail-orientated work that can take a normal dentist a long time to do. Yet you're able to do so many, uh, and it's such a great quality. So how are you able to keep up with such a, a huge workload and not compromise on the quality whilst you're consistently putting out so many great cases? Again, great question. Um, you know, part of, first of all, for people listening to this, everybody has a different gear. And, and kind of what I'm telling you is that I felt when I was younger that I was a race car driving in a parking lot, right? That was my upstate New York to me. And now I'm a race car that I'm fed, you know, I have the best mechanics working on my engine. I have somebody constantly rotating my tires. I have the purest gasoline being put into my uh, system. And I am unleashed on a racetrack, which is, the, which is Dubai, LA, New York. You know, for me, I would not have it any other way. In fact, I'm trying to always pile more on my plate, sure. right? And so it's just how I am as a person. And I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think everyone is like this, but I work much better with 50 different things coming at me than one. When I have just one thing, I get bored in my mind gets relaxed and I get, you know, when I have 50 things coming at me, I, that's when I'm laser focused and that's when I am my crispest. And honestly, when I feel mentally and physically the best, if you ask me, you know, people ask me all the time, why don't you go on vacation? Blah, blah, blah. Because vacation to me, like, you know, we used to do it every year. We would go to the beach, my wife and I, and we would sit on a beach for seven days. And by day three, I was physically and mentally exhausted. And people would always say, well, it's, yeah, it's because you never take a break. And, and it's not that. It's how I used to feel when I was in upstate New York. It's just like sitting around does not do my mind or body any good whatsoever. I mean, I need sleep, but I need action at the same time, all the time. And so doing this many cases, you know, it didn't happen overnight. And I, uh, it's funny because my assistant and I talk about it all the time. We used to back in not long ago, 2015, 2016, we worked at a one operatory in New York. And so there was only a, a chance to do one case in the morning, one case in the afternoon. And that was our day. It was, it started to be able to, to do this when I was going to Dubai back in, 2013, 2014, where I would have to do <clears throat> a lot of work in a short period of time. And so I figured out systematically how to divvy up each part to my assistant so that it was like a machine. And then you add an operatory on it and you run that. And then you add another operatory on it and you run that. And, and therefore, you know, once you get this system going, everyone plays a role and we're constantly working on perfecting it to make it better. And there's, you know, so many things that we have done, are doing, are going to do, but that's kind of what our day to day is, is figuring out how to, to accomplish this much without dropping a detail. Right. And it's not easy, but it didn't happen, 
you know, yesterday. Not like I woke up and I ran three rooms doing three preps at the same time. Yeah. Um, it takes time, but we've perfected it. Okay. So one of the questions I really wanted to ask you is, I'm sure you get asked this a lot, is your daily routine. I think we all watch your Instagram stories, see you work out, spend some time outside of the office as well. And it seems like you just have such a great work-life balance. Um, that morning mirror selfie, I saw that one today as well, is the transition you say from Michael to Dr. Appa, and that's what starts your day. So yeah. what I really want to find out is what are the key points in your daily routine that make you able to perform so well and how are you able to compartmentalize Dr. Appa from Michael? Um, so I think some of the key points in my day are, first of all, like getting sleep is critical, right? Mm -hmm. So if I don't get, so I typically go to bed at 10, Wake up at 4.45, which gets me seven hours, six and a half. What a 4.45, would you say? Yeah. <laughs> That's early. Yeah, it's early. Um, but for instance, I mean, there's been plenty of nights where you go to bed at midnight or later, mm -hmm. and you still have the 4.45 bell to ring, um, which doesn't change, right? If anything, I would like to change the opposite way. I would like to go to bed at 9.00. And then get up at 4.45. But uh, so, so that's the first critical thing. If I, if I have a good night's sleep already, I'm, I'm ahead. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is uh, I need, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't need a great workout because at the end, I always feel great. But I do need the workout. Um, and it doesn't have to be, you know, a thousand calorie burn workout at by at six o'clock in the morning. So what I typically do is I get up at four 45, I shave, brush my teeth, have some coffee. And then I, I built a gym, which is like 10 blocks from my, from my apartment. So I usually leave my house around five 30, get there at five 45, warm up. And then by, by six, my trainer is there and we're, we're working and we go from six to seven. So my point is, is that it doesn't need to be a killer workout. I just need to get it in because what it does is it like lubricates the joints of my body. Okay. It's like, I'm like the tin man. If I don't get the workout in, okay. yeah. um, I'm not going to lie. Like dressing well in a good outfit definitely makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. um a good hair day helps i mean <laughs> right now i'm having a terrible hair day and it's driving me nuts um and then there's another thing that i've really stopped doing which is um you know eating garbage uh feeling bloated in the morning and just you know that automatically put you into a cranky mood. So as hard, you know, sometimes as hard as it is not to eat crap, I just know for me personally, my body does not manage it well. And it really, it changes my mood. It changes my, you know, everything. So I think sleep, eating well, getting that workout in, if I can get those things into place, um, my day is pretty well set up. Um, 
And it usually goes until 5.30 or 6 in the office. And uh, it's interesting. My wife has been spending a lot of time in Florida because she rides horses and we have dogs and it's just hard to keep going back and forth. So when I'm going and I'm doing LA and Dubai in back-to-back weeks, so on those two weeks, I'm essentially coming back to New York by myself and my wife is in Florida. And then when I'm home for a stretch, she'll come home. Mm -hmm. So when she's not here, it's pretty, I can get pretty um, bad in terms of uh, I'll just get home from work and and keep working. Right. And that will, uh, you know, not allow me to sleep well. It will not allow my brain to shut off. So I'll be making phone calls, sending emails, doing, you know, whatever, from the minute I get home until, and I'll look down, it'll be 10 o'clock and I haven't even started to kind of come down yet. You know, my wife is home. We're in such a routine to where we'll have dinner, you know, we'll have conversation. And then by nine o'clock, she knows that like, I'm need to start gearing down for bed. Um, So it's beneficial (laughs) trying to say this in the right way (laughs) it's she makes my routine she makes my balance she makes me more balanced when she's not there i can get out of control up there you fall apart you know that's how it is that's good let's me to sleep (laughs) (laughs) edit that One of the things I think I've read or heard you say is that you turned vegan. Is that still? Is that yeah. Still? Yeah. That's, um, I can see the faces going right now. <laughs> vegan. Let me explain. Yeah. I definitely am vegan. Uh, but I would say I'm a hundred percent. No, that's not true. Okay. I'm definitely vegan. Mm -hmm. I don't eat meat for sure. I don't drink milk. I have eggs occasionally, very occasionally. But my point is this. The vegan thing works so well for me because I came from a place of Protein was your kind of main course and then vegetables and salad and fruits were kind of like the smallest portion of your meal. So even when I was trying to be healthy, I would say like, well, skip the vegetables, like screw those calories. I'll just focus on the meat. And I just think like reversing it. Now I don't have meat, but even if I did, it would be the smallest portion. Now I have like a, just an, a plate full of vegetables for lunch and dinner. Um, and it, and it, it allows the bloating thing, all that stuff that I was talking about that makes me feel terrible. It no longer exists. So I definitely had some lactose intolerance. So cutting dairy out was great. Um, I don't eat like bread and stuff like that, which always makes you feel bloated. Um, and then, you know, just eating largely vegetables, you can still eat a lot. I mean, not still, you can eat actually much more. So if you're hungry, you can, you can really go for it. 
but you'll never feel bloated. And I mean, I go to the bathroom like seven times a day, but that's for a different conversation. Oh, okay. And do you do you obviously, I know you work out every day. Do you take like protein shakes with it as well? Or you just mostly just stick to a good diet? I, I don't. So I have like these, you know, again, I was very fortunate to find a woman who cooks for me that she doesn't just cook for me. She's like a super genius when it comes to like understanding what my body needs in terms of like nutrients, proteins, you know, everything. Um, so I don't eat like refined sugar, like all that stuff. She just, it takes all the guesswork out. What I used to do, which was terrible is I would work all day like crazy eat a very small lunch, come home starving, and then have every great restaurant in New York City that would deliver to your door. And I would like, I'd be like, I'm not sure if I want steak or fish or chicken. So I'll order all three and then I'll just pick. And then what I would do is eat everything. And I was a fat, you know, I would get, you know, out of control. So this, like she makes all of my meals and basically just says eat this and that's what i eat and i don't have to think about it anymore that's great that's great yeah so from her obviously a person that's into your life cooks one and does one of the most important things she cooks your meals to one of house to your associate dentist you've got a great solid team around you yes what i really wanted to find out is how are you able to have such a solid team that understand your vision, understand your aspirations? What do you look for when you're hiring someone? I think it has a lot to do with um, people that believe in me and in the vision. I think when I connect with someone, Mm -hmm. I'm finding out that, you know, because, you know, one of the first things I'll say is like, this is not a regular dental office yeah. and people, you know, a lot of, a lot of people that you would just interview would give an eye roll. I mean, maybe not to my face, but like, it is a dental office and I understand that, mm-hmm. but it's not in my mind, right? We're doing something much different than just being dentists. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a personality thing. Like I, I also try or I'm mindful of the fact that everybody works better together when everybody gets along, you know, I don't need people to be best friends, but I need like-minded people to be under the roof together. (laughs) And when you're not, when you have a lot of different walks of life, um, you know, it's hard if there's one person who, you know, is complaining or whatever, it's just cancerous to the entire team and it needs to be cut out immediately. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of base people coming in on number one, obviously, do I think you're qualified to do the job that I'm asking? But there have been many times where I've hired someone for one position, found they're better off at a different position mm-hmm. and then move them. And that usually works out well because you want somebody doing something that they're good at and that they enjoy, right? Mm -hmm. If somebody is doing something and you're constantly correcting them or telling them, you know, you know, you're not doing it right. It becomes tough after a while. So you want to like put the person in the right position. 
but then you want to make sure that, you know, you're, you're dealing with like-minded people. So, um, and it's hard, it's hard. It's really hard. And I'm not the best person to ask. I'm going to get better at it. That's one of my 2021s. But right now I, tr I look at all of the teams like a place where I know that I'm going to spend 10 hours a day. And would I want to spend 10 hours a day with all the people around me? And the answer is yes. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So one of the things I noticed as well is, of course, your dental clinic is very different from most dental clinics. However, um, I'll be honest with you, I've just graduated. Uh, I think in a few years' time, when I'm able to start my clinic, I would take a lot of my inspiration from you and what you've done. Um, but I've seen a lot of dentists do this whole in-house labs or kind of copy a lot of what you do and put it off as their own idea. I don't know if you've noticed it, but I definitely have. Um, how are you able to kind of, you know, differentiate yourself from everyone else when, when you do something, you'll have a hundred other dentists copy exactly what you're doing? Um, another good question. <laughs> Stop asking good questions. Um, okay. So to be completely honest, everybody tells you like, don't let that bother you. Uh, uh, what is it called? Um, um, it's a compliment. Com or no. Um, yeah, it's a compliment. Imitation is sincerest form of flattery. Yes. <laughs> It definitely, if you're asking the real me, yeah. I would say it bothers me. Mm -hmm. um, and it bothers me for a different reason than, than you think. It doesn't necessarily bother me because they're going to steal patients from me, right? Um, it bothers me because it's a real, like <clears throat> being good in this profession has everything to do with vision. Yeah. And it just shows a real lack of vision on people's parts. And honestly, what good is it to have 500 me's in the profession? I would rather have people that, you know, want to do something completely different than me. Right. Cause that's what would really bring the profession forward. Not, you know, a bunch of white dental clinics with gold and labs and, you know, fancy, you know, zip up lab coats. Um, so, you know, I don't take my inspiration for dental for any, everything that we do here from dental. Like I'm not looking at other dentist offices and saying like, oh, that looks interesting. I would want to implement that because already you're, you're creating a ceiling of dentistry mm -hmm. and the whole idea is to create a unique experience. So I'm looking to outs like outside experiences to bring within to say like, okay, I know, you know, high fashion has nothing to do with dentistry, but these are the things that I want to do that I've seen done so well. I think they would work in a dent in our dental office. Right. And that is what sorts starts to elevate and change and, and um, I don't know, kind of, recreate the experience um so it it bothers me for that reason um it bothers me for that reason but at the same time it's not a thing in my mind you know like i, I want everyone to 
I think everyone should practice with a dental. I mean, I really do uh, think everyone should practice with a dental lab. I think everyone, you know, should be comfortable at work. You know, I used to wear a shirt and tie and a really tight suit to work every day and it was murder. And now I don't. And it's much, it's much easier to work. Um, so, I mean, a couple of those things, you know, I, I think are great and I'm glad people are, are doing them. Um, but I think that the, the, the separation between us, our clinics and people that are kind of recreating our clinics is pretty clear. And it, uh, and you know, it's interesting. I had a patient, he was like a very important patient that came in super creative guy and he was referred by a friend. And as much as people may think the space of which we work is so cool, um, the the feedback to me from treating this very important person who was very creative was he wasn't overly wowed by the space and he wasn't overly wowed by anything in the office. He was just wowed by me personally, right? And so that... And it goes for everything that I do, my Instagram, all that stuff. It's all very personal from me. Like no one's doing that for me. Um, And so that in and of itself creates my uniqueness that I'm not worried about someone stealing because you just, you can't be me, nor should you want to be. Just the way that I could never be Larry. And that's kind of why I'm always talking about it is because his specialness was very special as well. And when I first came in, I wanted to be Larry. And I realized in trying to be Larry that I was not being a good version of Larry. And it came out all wrong. And it, and it wasn't until I started being myself that I really started to succeed in this environment that we're in now. And so that's an important thing as well is like, there is a, a uniqueness to the individual, which really creates the atmosphere it's not the white walls or the zip up lab coat or the cool glasses you know those are all just attributes okay so i think one of the things that i i really learned from you two of the things is one is patient experience how you're able to take your patients through such a different unique dental experience you know there's often quite a negative connotation about visiting the dentist but when people want to go see dr apple one of your three clinics it's almost kind of luxury kind of trip to to a hotel or a resort of some sort that and also team culture you've got very good team culture i see your videos on instagram uh, having a team Mm -hmm. accountability for for you know what's going wrong in the day fix it come to you with solutions and i think that's a great mentality to have Uh, but i was wondering how are you able to keep that amongst your three different clinics when you're not there. So if you're not there, say you're in New York, in Dubai, how is Dubai able to perform all of that without you being there? Um, it's taken, you know, years and trial and error, putting practices into place and putting people into place and putting people into positions of power to make decisions um, that, you know, you know, we just celebrated our sixth anniversary in Dubai. And that's a great example is that I'm asleep for most of the time that Dubai is functioning. So if I, if they open at 11 PM, my time and close at I don't know, 10 AM, my time, most of that time for me is spent sleeping, but 
getting up at 4.45, the first thing that I do is reach over, grab my phone, and I have a full report of everything that's happened up to that point. And if I need to respond to anything, I will. If I don't, I don't. Um, and then throughout my morning, if I need to field anything, again, I can. Now, I've also made the ability of having transparency in all of the photographs and records that are taken throughout the day. So all time, you know, when I'm driving to work in the morning to New York, I'm looking at everything to make sure if patients that I've seen that I knew needed to come back for bite adjustments or whatever, I can see exactly what's been done. And then the same thing happens in LA when I get done basically with the day in New York. And that's why, okay. so you know, yeah. So now it's going to move on to the last final segment of our interview. So here okay. I'm going to dive a little bit deep into some reflections of yourself. Okay. Uh, so I wanted to know in general, dentistry and in life, what would you say has the biggest lesson you've learned from last year? I don't know that there was an, like a, a real life. Le- I mean, it, it all happened. So you're saying from COVID I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I learned some good and bad lessons and I matured a little bit, I would say. Um, good and bad lessons in that, at the end, 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 very end of the day, no matter how great the people are around you, um, you, you know, being a, a boss or a leader, especially in times like that, you have to be able to make some pretty critical decisions that other people are not going to make for you, nor that they, I don't want to say care, but they just, you know, it's not when, when global pandemic strikes, you start to see the truest of colors of everyone around you in life, forget employees, not employees, family, friends, so on and so forth. And so I've learned to be more self-centered. Why are you laughing? Perfect. No, I've learned to be more self-centered. Um, and I, what I mean by self-centered, it's very important. And that is, I make decisions that directly impact a lot of people around me's lives. So I'm going to make those with the same moral code that I've always been making them. Um, however, there has to be a point, you know, I'm also, just to throw this in there, I'm also... Um, American, Italian, and Catholic, which if you know anything about American Italians, we have just tons of guilt. We just live with guilt all day long. And so, so I've learned to kind of shed a lot of that guilt and be a little more self-centered in doing what is best uh, for the whole, but I have to be happy at the same time. Yeah. Um, And the other thing that I learned, I think, is that, you know, as soon as you think, and and I learned this from my wife a long time ago, but it was just kind of re-emphasized during the pandemic. But I remember coming home 
And it's like an ongoing joke because I'll come home and I'll be like, oh, babe, I'm exhausted. And she'll be like, oh, you're so exhausted. I know. It's like, I'll be, you know, anytime I say I'm tired, she'll be like, oh, really? That's a new, uh, it's a new thing for you being tired. But I used to come home and say like, oh, I'm so exhausted. And she, only the way that she can, told me that, you know, basically there are people that do a hundred times what I'm doing in a day and to to not focus on that. And, and, and it's like building a muscle. Like as soon as you think that you are really maxed out, you don't realize the capacity, the human body, mind, soul has to go so much further. And I think going into that pandemic, I was feeling pretty maxed out um, before anything hit. And then when it hit, uh, I worked, you know, three times harder than I normally work in order to get the wheels back on and keep everything functioning. And there were, you know, it was all new to everyone. So I think, uh, one of the lessons that I've learned is that, you know, there's always a little bit left in the tank. Um, as long as you don't talk yourself out of it. Right. You know, the, the, the human body and, and humanity in itself has such a, I don't know, will to survive and move forward that I, I just think that a lot of times we bring ourselves into this conversation of exhaustion and I do so much and, and it's really not the truth. It's all just a mindset. So just building up from that then, as COVID um, has taught you from that, what would you say in your life are you most appreciative of? I know COVID has, lo- uh, has led many of us to be appreciative of our health. Um, you know, thankfully, those closest to me were healthy throughout it and are still are today, touch wood. But aside from health, in general, in life, what are you most appreciative for? Myself, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's not true. Um, you know, for the, for not the first time, what I have come to understand is that working this hard and setting up life in this manner for me personally, uh, I have learned to appreciate every aspect of it more since COVID. So traveling to Los Angeles is a blessing. Being able to go to Dubai is amazing. Coming back to New York, going to Florida, like these are things and, and being, and having a real um, purpose to do all of those things. uh, You know, makes me thankful. Okay. So expanding from purpose, then you're already going to be remembered as a legend in dentistry. You, you've done so much, uh, contributed so much to, to dentistry itself. Um, in dentistry and outside dentistry, at the end of the day, what's the one thing you want to be remembered for? Um, just a good person. I think, you know, I think a lot of people are miss understood. And I think to get to a point of success and, you know, to be honest with you, we're really just scratching the surface in what we're capable of 
with this team and, and what we've built to this point, you know, it, there is a snowball effect and it's happening right now and I'm excited about it, but I think no matter what, you're going to make some people happy and make some people not so happy. Yeah. And those are, again, decisions that have to be made in order to, to preserve one's own self. But at the end of the day, you know, I grew up with a great mother and father and brother and, you know, came from a very, um, you know, quote unquote, good family. And I've always been a good person. And I hope that I'll be remembered as a good person long after. That's true. That's true. Okay. And the final question for today's interview, just to spice things up. Um, yeah. And obviously you, you've met a lot of people in your career that, you know, celebrities and, you know, the royal family and all. But if you were to able to have dinner uh, with someone dead or alive, um, who do you want as a dinner guest and why? Uh, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, okay. And because of any... I mean, I could say so many people, but Michael Jordan seems like a mythical creature to me. Um, even though he still walks the planet, it just doesn't seem possible that he's human. And so therefore I would love to sit down and enjoy dinner with him for sure. Okay. Just going to quickly expand on that then, then just for one second. I know you yeah. said Michael Jordan and I obviously watched that documentary on Netflix with him and, you know, he spoke about so many kind of skills that you need to have to be resentless and to achieve as much as he has. So just from there, what would you say, Dr. Michael Lapper, would be the three main things that you need to have to become a successful entrepreneur or dentist? Vision, um, passion, and, you know, a will to never quit. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Well, Dr. Apa, thank you so much for your All time. All right, my friend. That was a great interview. I really uh, enjoyed it and I appreciate the questions. I see that a lot of work went into uh, to thinking through all this stuff. And for that, I appreciate it. So much. And next time in your London, we definitely need to meet up. For have sure. you ever tried Sri Lankan food before? I have, but you I'm have? ready for more. Yeah. But yeah, definitely I've got my mom's cooking next time you're here in London and we'll have a blast. Thank you so much again for your time. Thanks, my friend.